You're listening to Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Zeon Lights is a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion UK. Zeon is an activist, British author and known for her environmental work and science communication. She has written for the Huffington Post, is author of the book The Ultimate Guide to Green Parenting and is a TEDx speaker. Zian recently became editor-in-chief for The Hourglass magazine, a newspaper that aims to tell the truth about climate and ecological emergency. A lot of us are putting our liberty on the line when we get arrested. You know, what, what will you put on the line when you really understand that this is like a war-type mobilisation we need? Zeon Lights is a science communicator and author of The Ultimate Guide to Green Parenting, MSc in Science Communication, and is a TEDx speaker as well, and also, of course, spokesperson for the Extinction Rebellion UK, and also editor of the XR UK newspaper, The Hourglass. Welcome to Women Making Waves. Lovely to have you here on our programme. The first thing I want to ask you really is, you've got so many hats to set on your head that you deal with every day and you say you spend quite a bit of time coming in on to London to do all your meetings. But where did it all begin? Because I think the one thing that sticks out for me is you are a science communicator. So how did that all begin? Mm, so... I get asked this question quite a lot and it's really difficult to answer it without saying that it began when I was a child and that it was just there. I was a child, I was trying to get my parents to recycle, I was trying to do all the little eco-warrior things back when you know it wasn't something people were doing, they all, you know, my siblings made fun of me and I just, I learned about global warming at school, I learned about the environment and, and um, degradation and landfill sites and I just thought this is all wrong, you know. I was basically a little Greta Thunberg, but well before, you know, anybody paid attention to anything like that. And um, I went vegan when I was 18, you know, really young, really difficult back then as well. You couldn't get alternative milk anywhere. So you say, Um, I'm just wondering, I'm curious because you say at an early age you were quite into eco moments and making sure that everything was biodegradable and we recycled. What did your parents think of that? Because it must have been a quite a new thing for them. Yeah, and actually they humoured me quite a lot. Um, but there were times, I definitely remember times that I went too far. For example, just things like I would take things out of the bin and put them in a separate bin Good for grief. paper. And then they would say, you know, there was no curbside collection. So I can see in hindsight, I was actually making their lives harder. They're both working hard. They've got six children. They're just, you know, why is their daughter causing grief for them? But for me, it was really important. And um, I just, I, but after a while, I think they just realised this is just who she is and she's never going to stop. And they, they humoured me more. But I definitely remember upsetting them a few times. And what about your school? <laughs> I mean, obviously... It was how... the same there. I mean, I, you know, I can't remember the names I got called, but it was not a popular thing to be like an eco... It wasn't even that term back then. Now, that's um... interesting you say <laughs> about being unpopular. And at school, it's really important to be popular. Or not even that, just the sort of glide through school without Mm. anything so obviously when you're at school and you had all these really really fascinating and very important beliefs in Mm. how we treat earth Mm. planet how hard was it to come away and go through school and move on into university well actually I would say university was easier so when I went from and then I was in sixth form and again people not really caring about the issues and constantly trying to talk to them about it then I went to university and suddenly there was a whole group of people who said we care about this too, you know, and we 
you know, one of them I'm still really close friends with today, and that was 16 years ago that I met him. And we joined Amnesty, and we founded the Campaigns Forum, and we founded the Veggie Group, and we did, you know, protests on campus. And again, that was well before, you know, and we got vegan food on the menu in the cafe, things like that, well before anybody was doing it, really. Um, but it was much easier to do it there, and that, I don't know why. Maybe the tides sort of had started turning, and people started caring about those issues. Um, and now I'd say it's just super easy. Now, you, you know, it's just a normal thing on the agenda. But, but your, your other question about why I went into science communication was because I found that I was talking to people about environmental issues and they didn't care. And I thought maybe it's the way I'm communicating it. Is there a different way to communicate it? So I went and did a master's and learned what are the best ways to communicate about different issues. You know, does, does, is fear a good way you know how do, how do you how do you help people if they have that fear to work through that fear or you know is it good to shine a positive light do people need hope and actually a lot of it came down to you know who are the people and what are the demographics and you know very complicated area but I definitely learned a lot of things that I wish I'd known really when I was much younger but but now you know I've been back to my parents and my siblings and they all recycle anyway and they actually my brother he's an engineer <laughs> yeah a really smart guy when he showed me his system he doesn't even use the council system he's got his own bins that he set up in his house so that he doesn't have to bring the bins in and out of the house and then he empties them and he's got all different color glass and this his kitchen just pristine setup and he said he said when he showed me the first time look at this we used to make fun of you for this. I couldn't believe so it. So you could almost say that you inspired your family in many ways, didn't you? Especially your brother. Is your brother older than you or older, younger? Yeah, He's older, older. yeah. But even better. Yeah, maybe. But I think part of it is just everybody's doing it. Yeah. But there was certainly a group of us that inspired that change to happen, where it went from being difficult and they didn't want to do it to, oh, it's a curbside thing, so everybody does it, I'm going to do it now. I think that was the shift. Was it the fear that made you want to get into this whole eco moment and, and making sure these really important issues were being brought to the to the mainstream? Was there was a fear when you were younger and then when you were at university? Is that what drove you? When I was a child, it started as fear because I remember there was a advertising campaign. I can't remember who it was. It might have been somewhere like Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth. And they showed like people turning off taps and turning off lights and then they'd have on the screen, it's not too late to act. And I remember watching this advert and my sister sitting there, much older than me, she's about 10 years older, and she said, oh, but it is. And I was just a child, you know, I was like eight or something. And it really stuck in my head that what if it's too late? And I went through this whole process of what happens if it's too late, you know, and what, what, have we done, what are we doing to the planet? And, and I have to do something about this. And then, you know, that really drove me. Initially, I wouldn't say I'm fueled by fear now. And I have a lot more acceptance now of what's happening, which I think you, you, do, you do develop after 30 years of watching the same thing happen and things actually getting worse mm. in a lot of areas. Alarming language, as you say, you felt the fear then and, and today children are on strike on Fridays, mm. climate change strike. Mm. Do you have that fear like the children have that fear now or is that something different to what I, you felt? I would say not so much fear. I, have, I feel constant betrayal. I brought children into this world. We knew there was a problem and we actually just let that problem get worse. And I knew there was a problem, but I was doing things, working on it, thinking we're not going to let this get worse. And then that IPCC report came out last year, it's what I looked at in autumn, it's about the time when Greta started striking, the Institute Rebellion came into being, because we all saw the data and went, oh my goodness, it's so much worse than we thought. And all that, all that time they were saying they were doing things, they weren't really doing anything. So when you say they, who are we talking about here? Politicians, world yeah. leaders, 
you know, yeah. the people who really had, you know, make the decisions of whether they're going to fund fossil fuels or clean energy ventures, basically those people really let us down. So a lot of the time I feel betrayal, also betrayal that it falls on me and ordinary people like me to have to now talk to people about this and tell them. And it's a horrible thing, honestly, I do so much public speaking. You have spoken at the TEDx talks. Mm -hmm. Was that your first time you've done that? So as a communicator, science communicator, you've got all this fantastic experience. You're a mum, you know exactly what you want to talk about. Was it a very exciting and also a very nerve-wracking moment to be at these TED Talks? Because they, they go viral, don't they? Yeah. It's interesting as well with that TED Talk because I got to choose a topic and everybody expected me to talk about climate or environment. And I was so burned out from that. I said, I have to do something that, that is invigorating and gives me... And actually, do you know, if I had done that, it probably would have been really popular and really what people needed to hear but I needed a break and I said I'm going to do astronomy because it's a passion and I love it and I think you can have a real connection with nature and the past and all kinds of mythologies when you look at the stars so that's what I did it on so doing it as like a passion and not like I'm bringing people a really heavy message actually for me was a bit of a break because it was a nice positive thing that you don't often get to talk about when you talk about the environment but it is nerve-wracking it's always nerve-wracking when you do any kind of public speaking you never know quite what the reception will be or you never quite know with with that we at least had a rehearsal but I remember we had the rehearsal the day before and it all seemed fine I went up on stage <laughs> and it was just in front of the, the TED people and then the next day obviously 800 people are queuing to come in and you can see them outside 800 yeah yeah wow and and they're all like you're going on in 10 minutes get me your mic on and I walked on and I just had this moment because basically when they put the spotlight on you now I'm sure people in theatre and actors know this but I don't know I didn't know this when they put the spotlight on you, you can't see anything. It's just dark. So all my friends had come up to support me in the audience and I couldn't see them. And I also was a bit kind of like, where do I look? Am I looking at the stairs, you know? And I had that in the back of my mind. <laughs> but I'd rehearsed it so much. They teach you, rehearse it so much. You know, be ready with what you want to say. So I was fairly confident, but it was, it was nerve-wracking. I did feel a bit like running off. I didn't know. Also in the TEDx talk, you say that when you were young, you were so fascinated by the stars and the whole arena up above mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. you bought yourself a telescope mm-hmm. at, at yeah. what age yeah. did you do this um, I mean, that's amazing I can't remember I was quite young and I didn't really have any help also remember I grew up in Birmingham it's so light polluted I think I was a very ambitious child <laughs> but I, but it was it was much later I was much older when I was a teenager when I first saw the Milky Way which actually a lot of people still haven't seen you know and that just that was it I was hooked you can never look at it too much it's just you can say you've seen the pictures and the purples and the colors but when you actually look at it and you see stardust you just think I want everyone to see this every day and and I think we'd live so differently if we did and actually if you think about it for most of our time on this planet humanity humankind has been able to see the stars. We, we used to sleep under them and we used to live very outdoor lifestyles and we didn't have a lot of light pollution. It's very recently that we've lost that connection. I think there might be something in that with kind of losing an overall bigger perspective or philosophical perspective. Well, actually, there's been a, a lot of fantastic news about you as well, but one of the quotes is you're an outspoken science advocate. Obviously, we just talk about that. Mm. But do you need to be constantly outspoken to really push forward a movement like Extinction Rebellion and all that? Do you, do you have to be so outspoken? 
Um, I don't think you have to be because there are so many people who do work who don't work that way. There's so many people who work really well, like Nick Stitch Rebellion, like you know, a lot of the artists who are actually really quietly working away. You know, for every one of me, there's a hundred of them. So there is that. Um, I, I am very outspoken naturally, so I often get put in these roles. Just want to also recap one more moment on the mm -hmm. TEDx talk that I thought was really, really interesting. Is you went across a field and you took your telescope mm -hmm. up and you were, uh, quotes, trespassing on some land oh, and the farmer and his son came yes. along. Yes. So what happened? Well, so this is a great story. So it was also in deepest, darkest Devon, which is not... Some of these areas are not always known for their friendliness. And it was outside an area called Crediton. There's a lot of farmers around there. And honestly, it looked like it was an open part of land because their feds were sort of not, it was missing in a patch. And it's dark, it's so dark. And I was using a torch <laughs> on these little lanes, you know, there's no lights. And uh, I, I set it all up. And, you know, it looks like a weapon. Like, I realised that once I saw Your it walking telescope. over. I never thought about it like that. But actually, <laughs> then I looked at it. It does, it, and I thought, actually, this looks like, oh no, what do they think? And they were shining this torch in my eyes. And they had this big four by four and they came over, you know, what are you doing? But I was so excited because I'd just seen Saturn that I just started jumping up and down. And, you have to look for the telescope, it's Saturn. And so straight away they sort of clocked what was happening and they were looking through the telescope. And the farmer said to me, I always come out here to check on the cows at night, but I never look up, but I will now, you know. We had a really nice conversation. So what that strikes me about you, Zion, is that you are an amazing communicator. You don't mind being threatened <laughs> with getting off the land. <laughs> it was quite threatening. Yeah, I, I'm sure. Oh, but he also sh yeah. shook my hand and he said, come Did back. You? Yeah, genuinely. He said, but I mean, I'll never go back because I... I it, I don't know where it is. It's the middle of no it was just the middle of nowhere. It's just looking for a patch to find you know, a lot of these lanes are not even on yeah. any maps. I just found somewhere. So thank you to that farmer <laughs> that farmer. But you know, he really shook my hand. Anytime you want to use my land, which is just really, you know, heartwarming for me. And I hope that it is because I'm a good communicator. And, and listening and working both ways and hearing that side to things. Do you think you are a very brave person? Do you think you are out there? Do you find sometimes that you think, oh my goodness, I've got to do this, but actually I know that I'm so passionate about this and I believe in it so strongly, as well as having the scientific backup as well. But you need to be brave, do you not, to do this? I think so. I get called brave a lot, so I'm, I guess so. I don't feel particularly brave. You know, I just saw this morning that there are three activists in um, Extinction Rebellion Scotland who've just climbed. They've just gone out on a boat and climbed the shell rig. Did you see that? They're staying up it, there yeah. in this weather. And in Scotland, it's mm. cold. And I saw that and was like, whoa, massive respect to them. That is brave. That is not something that I would be able to do, you know. But then who knows, maybe they look at me and say, she went on the Andrew Neil show, because I get that quite a lot. <laughs> even now, it was ages ago, but it had like two million views. So I, even now I'll get that and I'll get recognised. Did, you did that thing and they think it's really brave, but I don't, I, for me, I just feel like, but I'm just sitting down talking to another human being. It doesn't mm. scare me. Why would it scare me? Well, that's hide. true. But if we talk about reactions and because... In 2015, you bought out, you produced that book, mm. which is The Ultimate Guide to Green Parenting. Mm. That was 2015. Mm. And in one of the tabloid newspapers, mm. you would, it was a fantastic article. It was absolutely mm. wonderful. And then if you go further down in 2018, <laughs> in the same tabloid newspaper, <laughs> you are uh, quoted as being clueless on the Andrew <laughs> Neil show. The question I ask is, you've got to be quite strong Resilient. and thick-skinned, haven't you? Because you can go from being the, the angel mm. and then suddenly you are this 
this person who mm. is, gets a negative criticism. Oh, absolutely. And uh, do, you, do you learn along the way to actually sort of box that, put it away and get on to the next Honestly, part? I just think I'm such a resilient person. I kind of just don't care. And it was, what, oh, it was the done. same thing that I had when I was at school where I just didn't care if I was the weirdo who was collecting all the little bits of paper in the corner to recycle. Because I knew that it was better for the planet and I was doing it to help everybody and that's all that mattered to me and it's the same thing that matters. And on that note, I had Michael Schellenberger recently wrote an article about me. The title was, Why Everything They Say About the Climate Movement Is Wrong. And it had a picture of me, Bill McKibben, Greta Thunberg and AOC and a koala, which I thought was kind of funny because I was a bit like, what did the koala say? But the article was, and actually if you read the article, it's quite heavily criticising mostly me. But um, I didn't even know that was out. You know, somebody sent it to me and said, have you seen this, Dion? You know, I don't follow what's going on. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting because actually I read some of Michael's work and I actually think I would get on with him in real life. So I sent him a message and I said, do you really think... So he said in that article that I was wrong about mass migration. And I sent him some articles, science-based research, and I said, is this wrong, Michael? Because that's what you've said. And he said, let's have a phone chat about it. And we, I spoke to him on the phone, it's only a couple of weeks ago. So I arranged it and I spoke to him on the phone. We got on really well. And he said he was really happy speaking with me and he said he's, you know, he's writing a book and he'll use some of my quotes. And he said, can I spoke, uh, quote you as Exxon? And I said, where I've spoken about these things, yes you can, these things here are my opinion. And that was it. And now occasionally he'll ping me an article and I'll send him a reply email and we get on really well. So that was a really interesting turnaround. But if you look at that article, you think, wow, this guy really hates this but woman the, that he's never met. But. but that's great that you did that because that's the sort of thing that I would expect from you. You're very good at communicating and, and being diplomatic about it. But for him, he's written that article. It's out there, continues to be out there. It does, yes. Did he actually feel, did he actually say, I was wrong to have put that in? No. No. So but why does he do that? You know, it's not. Okay. It's not on mine, is it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, again, if people read it and that's what they believe, then they're, they're making their own assumptions and I can't change that. But I'm always here to, you know, people tweet me and email me. Extinction Rebellion are obviously pushing the movement and making sure we're very aware of climate change and all the issues that come with that as mm-hmm. well. All these processes that are happening, you see some negativity in the press mm. where two men were trying to stop a chew very recently and yeah. they got pulled down. Yeah. So um, as much as getting bad press, do you think that all the protests and the movement that you do do, do you think that's making a positive impact on our own conscience? Mm. So the first thing I would say is that I'm always amazed at how popular we are, given that all we do is cause trouble. All we do is cause disruption. That's our entire aim is to disrupt the system and to call for a better system. It says in our declaration of rebellion that we are not a protest movement, we are in open rebellion against the British government. I'm amazed that people like us as much as they do. You know, my email is just going every day, can you come and speak at this? Can you write, I've had it this morning, can you write this article for me? Can you, can you tweet, tweet this for me? You know, all day, and that's outside of the work I do within the organisation that's XR, which there is so much happening. And I do the newspaper, so I get all the feedback from that. I mean, I'm amazed you know, that there isn't more of a reaction like at Canning Town. And actually, yeah, you know, Canning Town, I had my own thoughts about that. And That's I, Canning Town, the tube, wasn't it? Yeah, when the yeah. Two and I'm really good friends with Mark. He's yeah. an incredible person. And again, anybody who meets Mark loves him. And he's yeah. really, you know, he's very centred. He meditates a lot, really beautiful person. And his intentions were pure, you know. He, 
You get that impression about and him. And he the was very pure. sorry afterwards. He yeah. was. And he said, maybe, you know, he doesn't live in London. Maybe he should have thought about the area or whatever. But there's always, I say, there's always that potential for anything, any event like that to go wrong. And we try really hard to make sure anyone who comes into the movement does the non-violent direct action training where that's covered. And you have that understanding of even if someone comes at you, you stay non-violent. First of all, massive, important principle. It's, it's, it's more than just a tick box. Like, you really have to be centered in this. Don't do the action if you think that you're going to lash out because people might respond badly towards you. But just remember why you're doing it. And if your intentions are pure, then that's all, that's all anyone can do, really. And yeah. no one's forcing anyone to do anything, of course. Yeah, the suffragettes were really unpopular. I was just about to ask you so, that. So, I mean, yes. you know, I just think, again, like, why, why are we so popular? I get asked all the time to come and do this because there are people who've never met me you know mm. and I just think even with all those articles saying that I'm clueless and so the hourglass newspaper what, what exactly is the purpose of the hourglass newspaper so that's the, something and when did it start the purpose is to have a model of climate reporting what would it look like if the newspapers responded to the climate emergency the, the way that they responded to war and I actually studied this I went back and I looked at the war reporting so every bit of the paper would become about the war situation even the recipe page would become about how to feed your family with rations, every little bit of it. So I thought, how do we apply this to a newspaper? And I looked at all the newspapers and I said, you know, they might have a little section on environment. They might even go a bit all out and they have a whole page on climate reporting. But it's actually the whole paper needs to look like this. What does that look like? And it's, that's what the model is. And that's what we introduced to the press um, when we had a press conference before the last rebellion, which I introduced I said, you know, I've left you all an hourglass on your seats. It was, you know, a room full of journalists. It's a, just, just think of the Murrah boys. The, I don't know if you know anything about the Murrah boys. There were, um, there's actually a group of men and a woman, but they were called the Murrah boys because two of the men leading it had the surname Murrah. And they were groundbreaking journalists during World War II where they were told by the editors not to report on the war. They're told, people don't want to hear about that. And they went and did it anyway. They risked their jobs. But once they did, the interest in it became so great. And people realised what was happening, that they wanted to be involved, basically. Not that I'm, you know, a warmonger person, but that it influenced people because... And actually, it's not... It, it did influence people, but it wasn't propaganda. They, all they did was tell people the truth. Mm. And so there's an aspect of that now. Where, and I said, I've said that to that room of journalists. What, what does it mean for you to tell the truth? I'm not saying put your job on the line, but, you know... A lot of us are putting our liberty on the line when we get arrested. You know, what, what will you put on the line when you really understand that this is like a war-type mobilisation we need? What do you think MPs and companies and, and most people, you know, countries, what are they afraid of about climate change? Because there seems to be, mm. you've just talked about World War II mm. and how patriotism was the way of, of bringing everyone together. So mm. it wasn't a case of telling the truth. It was a case mm. of telling this is what we need to do mm. to win the war. Mm. Now, in many ways, it is a war in the sense that you're mm -hmm. trying to win over climate change and you're mm -hmm. trying to make sure that we are so very aware of it on a personal and group point of view. But why are we so afraid of it? This is a really interesting topic and something that I've read quite widely on. And a lot of what it seems to come down to, I mean, obviously different people might have different reasons, but overall it's kind of an existential crisis that almost evolutionarily we're not wired to imagine a threat that is just so huge and philosophical and also by the way we're the enemy you know we're very good at pointing out you know, what happens when it's all of you and it's your loved ones and it's the way you live and it's things that you enjoy and, and you didn't mean to hurt anyone it's really hard I think and actually it takes so much courage the thing what you were saying earlier about being brave look at the people who do speak out about this like Greta 
you have to be brave because you have to take your head out of the sand and own it and you have to look it in the face and you have to look at awful things like that baby kangaroo burned to cinders, you know, trying to escape through that. And, and no one wants to look at it. And I don't even blame anyone. Why would anyone want to look at that? It's heartbreaking. And you especially don't want to think that A, you did anything to contribute that to that. And B, that you're, it makes you feel helpless. You know, it makes you feel, it makes you feel awful. So mm. no wonder people look away. But the problem, of course, is looking away will make it worse. What would be the advice to all the young people out there? You've talked about that they, it's, it's their issue. It's our issue, as you say, as mm. well. How would you advise someone not to be, not upset, but to use their energy mm. of anger and move forward from an individual point of view? I think it's like holding hands with a loved one and they're slipping away and you know there is medicine and you know if you work really hard you might get medicine and save that person. Um, you know, I think humans are incredible and we can achieve incredible things when we really want to and that we have to remember that and hold to that, that actually when people are well looked after and you know, they don't have all the struggles that actually people face today, they are, they're great to each other. You know, and, and we don't have to be. There's no reason for us to be. We could be tribal warriors all the time. It's in our DNA. But we choose acts of kindness. But are there some things you think, crikey, we've done it there? Are there little bits in, the, in, the, in this chink or this puzzle? Or, yeah, I suppose it is a puzzle in many ways that we're trying to bring everybody together. But are there things that, you, that have come along and you thought, wow, that has made a difference? There are lots of things happening all around the world that are inspiring and incredible. And it's people behind those things. It's generally not government although there have been cases of was it the Netherlands where they made public transport free that's right Germany dropping their price it their yeah. public transport prices there's there's always stuff like that and mm. it's really worth remembering that actually that's just people pushing mm. for those changes and that's that's incredible but the most incredible thing for me is the way that these protest movements have brought people together in a way that I just could not have foreseen and I'm grateful for every day because I was fighting this fight on my own for so long and what full do you mean of by on your own do you mean just trying to get people to recycle when yeah. i'm eight yes and and trying to sign a petition at school about can we make sure the school turns the lights off at, uh, at night you know <laughs> at, at the age of 12 and then 15 oh she's a bit weird why is she why doesn't she eat meat she just has to have salad when the rest of us are having burgers why won't she just eat it why don't you just eat it zion look it's really cheap we're in kfc why don't you eat here that's how, it's the coming together for me, which is the most positive thing, because who knows what that could build. Well, exactly. And just touching on planes and travel, you, I think recently you put out a quote in 2025 that we want to halt plane mm. travel. Is that right? Mm. I mean, how realistic do you like to be on your views and, and quotes? So and... the important thing is we only have three demands, and that's the thing. Those are the things that we're all behind tell the truth, net zero by 2025, and citizens' assemblies. All the other stuff is just speculation. We don't have any official lines on it because we don't believe that we should be dictators and we should decide that. All we're saying is listen to the experts. That's what Greta's saying. You know, why listen to us when you can go and listen to experts who studied aviation? You know, there's people who studied this stuff their whole lives who will tell you what sustainable levels are and how to go about it. And maybe it does mean that industry has to die. Or maybe it can evolve and change. Maybe there are better fuels. Honestly, I wouldn't claim to know. I don't want to spend a week researching it when somebody out there already knows. With citizen assemblies, we're saying, let's get those experts in a room, let's get people in a room, like a jury, you listen to the evidence and let people decide once they hear the evidence. Because actually the politicians are very bad at listening to evidence. I would stand behind whatever the experts say if they say we need to bring down flights by this much, or if they don't, if they say we need a certain kind of, you know, 
replacement for fossil fuels, absolutely fine. That's what we're saying is we need to move in that direction, which is slowly starting to happen. Over half of the councils in the UK have now set up citizens' assemblies. So I feel like that is happening. It's just everything does feel slow when you're up against the behemoth that is the climate and ecological crisis. Oh, it's been great talking to you, oh, Sian Mike. It's been fantastic me. indeed. And just when you want to switch off at the end of the day, what is your switch off moment? Just... Okay, you really want to know? Yeah, of course we I'm do. I'm a massive geek. Yeah, that's good. I love good. all fantasy, Lord of the Rings, I read the books every year, watch the films, cosplay, I do cosplay, <laughs> <laughs> anime, I watch anime with my kids. Somebody changed my Wikipedia page, they vandalised it, it gets vandalised all the time, I think they've locked it down now. But somebody changed my name on there to Poison Ivy, obviously met as like an attack. No, but it was great because then I dressed up as Poison Ivy for Halloween, I was like, yes, thank you trolls, it gave me a great idea. That's that's basically what I do, just, well, and, and just remember to laugh at, laugh at things. Well, I think you've been an absolute inspiration, thank you, thank you so much indeed. That was Zeon Lights talking to Susie Thorpe. So when I went to Long Linda to speak and interview Izion Lights, I entered into the Extinction Rebellion building. It's very white, very modern, and they have quite a few rooms off. They use quite a few meeting rooms. But it, it was a really interesting building because everybody in there was very laid back. They'd always say thank you or they'd say hi to you, but everybody was really friendly. Now, I'm sure in most offices, everyone's really friendly, but it just seemed a little bit more, I don't know, just more relaxed and they wanted to speak to everybody that came in and there was no sort of put your head down, get on with the work. They were very networky, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. It didn't even occur to me they had a building, to be quite honest, because they always come across, obviously they're quite well organised and, and coordinated, it always comes across to me as a, a collective of people who just kind of get together to do things. Yeah, sort of meet up in the street. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Didn't even occur to me that they would have an HQ and, and be running things. Yeah, from there. They, they do. They had a lot of nice people there and they were really friendly, as I said. She got a great press, obviously, in the Daily Telegraph in 2015 when it came out. And I asked her about the TEDx talks as well, because I really enjoyed watching the TEDx talks. Good for her. And we wish her all the best. And uh, Oh, indeed. What an amazing thing to be involved in. You're listening to Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio.